This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Hi, I'm Rena Nainen, and this is Ask Lisa, the Psychology of Parenting podcast. It's a podcast to help parents better understand their kids. Dr. Lisa Demore, a psychologist with three decades of experience and the author of three New York Times bestselling parenting books, takes your questions. Both of us are moms ourselves, and we're eager to hear from you. So send us your questions to asklisa at drlisademore.com. And you can join our community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The handle is Ask Lisa Podcast. And also subscribe to our brand new YouTube channel, Ask Lisa Podcast. Episode 158, Practical Optimism with Dr. Sue Varma. I just find it difficult in the dead of winter. February is a hard month, Lisa. It's so hard. Why? <laughs> Um, Rena, try doing February in Cleveland. It's you always really win. not that you, fun. You always win. It's that. really not that fun. <laughs> we have our moments, but it is really um it's it's for true believers, really. You know, Cleveland has its really um strong, strong loyalty, and this is how it shows. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. Well, I find it's February is sort of the time of the school year where um I feel like stuck in the mud or the snow. It's kind of hard to keep trudging forward sometimes. And how do you stay true and find optimism, right? I just think it's hard. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, it's a hard time. And it's interesting, Rena, clinically, I can tell you my caseload and my colleagues' caseloads, they always build in February. That whatever else is going on, things start to really, people really are feeling the weight of the year. Um, or so the it's not just a feeling on top of everything else. It's not just a feeling. It's you something have data I consistently to, seen. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. So this is exactly why I couldn't be more excited to have this next guest um, who has a book, an incredible book called Practical Optimism, The Art and Science and Practice of Exceptional Well-Being. Dr. Sue Varma is going to join us. She's a psychiatrist and a cognitive behavioral therapist based in New York City. She's got over two decades of private practice experience. And today, her book is officially out. You've seen probably some of her advice in the New York Times over the past few weeks. She believes that physicians have a duty to not only take their patients from a state of dysfunction to function, but also from functional to optimal. I love that. Dr. Suvarma, welcome. Thank you so much, Rena. Thank you, Lisa. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you. I'm so excited to talk to you both today. We are so glad to have you here. And I will say, I got to read a copy of this book early. Um, because I had the honor of blurbing it. And Rena and Sue, I don't blurb everything that comes my way. I pick and choose. And I was so excited as I got into this book to just see how gorgeously Sue took what we know on the clinical side and the academic side and translated it 
for immediate practical use in the hands of, you know, we have a lot of parents who listen. Um, I think their older kids could get a huge benefit out of it, but we also know, you know, kids do as well as their parents are doing. So this was an incredible gift to families and adults. And Sue, I'm just so grateful to you for writing it. Thank you so much, Lisa. And I'm so grateful to you for you reading it, you blurbing it. I'm a huge admirer of everything that you do. And every day I feel like lucky to get a little snippet of some wisdom from you. You know, and I look forward to it on social media. I share it with parent friends, with patients. Um, so thank you for saying that. And, you know, really that's what we need right now is very concrete, actionable, tangible steps that also really recognize and honor what people have been through. You know, it's not enough. And, and that's what I say, how this sort of differentiates optimism from toxic positivity is that we don't want to say, hey, just look on the bright side without really acknowledging what the suffering that people are experiencing for a variety of reasons, and then also giving them a path forward. And so that's the practical side of the optimism. I love it. And and Sue, actually, that gets to something I want to have us start with, which is your backstory. So you were a trainee in a New York hospital on September 11th. Yes. So here you are, and I remember what it was like, right, to be a you know green clinician, you know, learning as you go, and suddenly you are dealing with caring for people going through incredible stress and trauma, and helping them move towards resilience and growth. What did that moment in your career teach you? Like, what did you learn through that experience? Yes. I mean, I saw how unbelievably resilient people are by nature. And I feel like in, in many ways, it can almost be our default setting and then life gets in the way. You know, like none of us are going to get to leave this world without grief and loss and disappointment. Some of some of it will be the big T, you know, the life-threatening um, trauma that many people experience that day. And some of it will be the little T's, you know, the breakups, the divorce, the job loss. And what I learned was when I met these patients later on, I was a trainee at that point, I got tons of education, sought it out, um, and eventually became the medical director of this 9-11 mental health program. And what was so amazing was that the program was integrated into the fold of the medical and the primary care. And what I love about that, and that really is an ideal model, is that people then take their mental health seriously on par with all the medical symptoms. So people would come in for screenings, they would come in for a battery of tests, for asthma, for GI problems. And as we know, people had many medical problems, cancers related to 9-11. We saw rescue, recovery, first responders, people who were residents working down there. And many of these people witnessed loved ones, family members die or get seriously injured or were themselves seriously injured. And I began to get very interested in the idea of resilience. And one of the features of resilience was optimism. Now, no one talks about optimism. It's considered mm -hmm. this, how you know, feel good. What is this Pollyanna positive thinking nonsense? There's no science behind it. And then I spent the last 20 years looking for the science and really recognizing that while 25% of optimism is genetic, you know, I always thought, you know, you're either born with it, this sort mm -hmm. of glass half full thinking. I realized actually 75% of it is within our hands. And what is so interesting is that these are all skills that each one of us can learn coping skills, emotional regulation skills, reaching out for support. And then I realized that, wow, how amazing would it be that we don't break, that we bend, 
when something bad happens to us. I want to ask you about that, Sue. Why do you think it is that in the midst of horrific tragedy, some people manage to survive and then later thrive? What's the difference between what makes somebody completely broken and unable to get up and somebody able to find their way? Yes. You know, what's so interesting is one thing that I learned is, you know, one of these experiments that I was fascinated by, and I was very much inspired by the work work of Dr. Martin Seligman, um, you know, founder and father of positive psychiatry, one of them at least, and this study of learned helplessness. And what I found so fascinating, we, what we had always thought, so just to give you a little background about the study is that, you know, you the study had been done with dogs. We're not, you know, promoting animal testing and, you know, mm-hmm cruelty to them. But what we learned from this experiment decades ago um, initially was that when you treat dogs and then it was later applied to humans, um, you know, you keep shocking them, you keep exposing them to adversity. At first you give them a way out, but then when you don't, they learn their helplessness. And years later, these researchers came to find out that it's not that you learn helplessness. What these dogs, when they were allowed to, to be free, some of them didn't escape. They were like, why bother? They got depressed. They're like, I don't need to leave. Like, e- even though the doors were open, they were shocked. Then they were, the doors were open and they were, um, they never left compared to people who realized or dogs that realized that they could leave. And the difference is that you don't learn your helplessness, you learn your agency. And they actually came mm-hmm. back 40 years later and revised it. So our default mode is to sometimes give up. But if anybody in our life gives us just a little bit of support and say, hey, the door is open, you can leave now, the shock is over. If we can see a little glimmer of hope at the end, we're more likely to take it and say, you know what, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. So, you know, I think some of it is genetic that we're hardwired. Some of it is early childhood experiences of being, um, you know, exposed to abuse or trauma or loss um, or neglect or not having parenting or secure attachments. But a lot of it is learned over time. And I think if we can see any mastery, any sort of skill building, like, hey, I did this and we can carry it forward. I think mastery in one area um, lends itself to mastery in another. And I know that there been so many times when I've taken on challenges and I'm like, I can't do this. And I've had to be reminded by people that love me. And they're like, no, you are doing it. You can do it. What did you do in this other aspect? See, it worked out for you there. So even I very much have to practice this. And that's why I call it, there's a practical aspect, but then there's a practice aspect. We have to practice optimism. I love that, Sue. And it's funny. I think about, you know, our clinical training. And and one of the things I remember learning along the way is that what therapy does is it gives people options, right? It doesn't tell them what to do. It gives people options. And that's what you're saying. Like, there's an open door. You can go through that open door. Um, okay. So thinking about your work and what you've brought across in this wonderful book, if there are listeners thinking, okay, well, let's put it on the ground. Like, what are some things I could do to feel a little bit better you know, what would you say? You have these wonderful pillars of practical optimism in the book. Like, walk us through a couple of these. Yes. So, you know, the first one, and, you know, they're in no particular order, but um, I like it because the first one is purpose. And purpose could be your purpose in life, or it could be what your purpose is in an interaction with someone. So, let's say you're having difficulty do I, in terms of do I want to confront them or not, and say, what is my intention? Um, and just the fact that you stop and pause to say, what is my intention? What is my desired outcome? Is it to get closer to this person? If that's the case, I'm probably not going to yell and reprimand them. I might seek to understand. So just having pause is very helpful. 
the other part of purpose is sometimes in life, if we feel as if we don't have a purpose, because we're seeing that a lot of people are experiencing burnout right, right now, a lot of people are experiencing languishing where you're not fully depressed, but you're just not feeling great. Sometimes recognizing that if you can't find a purpose, it's on you to create it. And this idea from cognitive behavioral therapy of behavioral activation, of putting the cart before the horse, not waiting for motivation, not waiting for someone, you know, I would joke to my, with my patients who are like, I'm single and I really want to meet somebody. And I'm like, they're not going to fall from the ceiling into your lap in this mm -hmm. office, right? It's what we do in between sessions where you're out in the world and creating those opportunities for yourself. And so sometimes we don't feel motivated, but that's okay. You know, and I think that, you know, action begets more action. So if you're able to start a little bit of something, and then in that chapter, I talk about role remake at your job or job crafting, this idea of if you're in a job where you're like, I'm not experiencing meaning, I feel like I'm making the company money. What am I doing for myself? What am I doing for my family? Your purpose does not have to come from your job. It's great if it's connected to your paycheck but it doesn't have to. And you can ask your boss, are there little things that I can do that are more aligned with my interests, my hobbies? And it might be something like doing you know, a charity race with coworkers, if you want. So that's just one pillar. And I talk about different ways that a person can achieve purpose, even giving back. We know that adults who volunteer live longer. We know that children who volunteer, teenagers or who help younger kids with their homework, have less inflammation, less likely to have cardiac disease later in life. So there's so much science behind altruism and giving back. And if you don't feel like you have a purpose, so much of depression turns us inward. It, it caught, forces us to ruminate. When we're out in the world engaged with other people, engaged in hobbies, engaged in awe, this idea of experiencing something bigger than yourself, it could be going to a museum, it could be going to a beautiful national park, it takes you out of your mind and it, it it short circuits this whole rumination cycle. So that's just one pillar and there's so many and I'm happy to get into them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we're going to pause and take a quick break. And then on the other side of this, I want to ask you a little bit about visualization. Is that real? Does that help with optimization, op optimism? And then also we're going to talk a little bit about negative self-talk and victimhood and what that does as well. We'll be right back. You're listening to Ask Lisa, The Psychology of Parenting. I got the most amazing pair of bootcut black work pants that have been a game changer, all thanks to my stylist at Stitch Fix. The stylists understand your style, your size, your budget, and they do all the shopping for you. It took a couple of tries for the stylist and I to really see eye to eye, and once they did, it's such a game changer. I asked for a pair of black pants that make my legs look good, and also would look good with a blouse or a nice top. They really nailed it. And then they found another cardigan for me that really works. I also love that they show you different styles of how you can put these outfits together. I love that it feels that like she can read my mind now and we've got a rhythm to where all I do is say I need this type of wardrobe piece and she sends it to me and it fits and it works. Styles that make you feel as good as you look. Get started today at stitchfix.com slash asklisa. That's stitchfix.com slash asklisa. stitchfix.com slash asklisa. Did you know that most bedding is made with harsh chemicals like formaldehyde, synthetic pesticides, and toxic dyes? Luckily, one company is changing this standard for good. Bullen Branch Sheets, which you know I love, uses the rarest 100% organic cotton that's traceable from family farm to your family home. I have had my Bullen Branch Sheets for a while now, and I love them. They feel like butter. 
In fact, I am so used to them now that when I travel, as I often do for work, I take my bowl and branch pillowcase with me and I put it on the pillow in the hotel room so I can enjoy that softness at least on my face, even when I'm not sleeping in my own bed. Sleep better at night with the softest sheets from Bowl and Branch. Get 15% off your first order when you use the promo code ASKLISA at BowlandBranch.com. That's Bowl and Branch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, Branch.com. Promo code ASKLISA. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I love doing laundry now because of EarthBreeze. EarthBreeze are these eco sheets that look just like a dryer sheet, but it's ultra concentrated, liquidless, so you don't have that drippy goo from plastic jugs. EarthBreeze is really tough on stains, even odors. And if you've got teens, you know about those odors. Dermatologist tested, hypoallergenic, and also free of bleach, dyes, and parabens. Fragrance-free option is also there for anyone who wants it. So what EarthBreeze did was they got rid of the unnecessary chemicals for a formula that's kind to sensitive skin of all ages, and that includes babies. And I love that I just order online and the shipment comes right to my door when I need it. So right now, our listeners at Ask Lisa can receive 40% off of EarthBreeze. That's right, 40% off just by going to earthbreeze.com slash asklisa. That's earthbreeze.com slash Ask Lisa to cut out single-use plastic in your laundry room and get your 40% off your subscription. Earthbreeze.com slash Ask Lisa. Welcome back to Ask Lisa, the psychology of parenting. We've got special guest, Dr. Sue Varma, joining us on this episode with her brand new book. We're excited about this for Sue, uh, talking about practical optimism, the art, science, and practice of exceptional well-being. Sue, I got to ask you, when you talk about victimhood, the, you know, the narrative that sometimes goes in your head, why do some people, when bad things happen, continue to tell themselves that they're a victim? And how does that mindset negatively affect their life? Yes. So, you know, again, some people might be hardwired to experience pessimism. And what was interesting about what I learned is that pessimism and optimism are not two ends of the same spectrum. They're actually separate entities. And I'm glad you asked about this because victimhood is pessimism. It's assuming that things that happen in the world are um, meant personally to harm you, that you have no agency, that you have no control, and it keeps you trapped. You think that this negative thing will last forever. You think that it is an indication of who you are as a person, as a, a, a total failure, not just in one circumscribed aspect. And it paralyzes you. So while it may be your default setting, it doesn't mean that you can't simultaneously ask yourself to reframe the situation and say, okay, this happened to me. Okay, I can continue to, to find myself a victim. But what's the utility? And when I was mm -hmm. working with 9-11 patients, you know, that, that question is something that I learned in my work with them because they would say, Dr. Varma, I know what you're saying, but a terrorist attack could happen tomorrow. So why would I go back on the subway? Why would I go back to downtown Manhattan? And I was dumbfounded because like they, you got me stumped. You're right. These things do happen and they can happen. You know, there was a huge crane incident in New York City. I mean, things fall from the sky and, you know, but what's the utility is that if we allowed ourselves to believe that would happen every single day, then none of us would ever leave our house again. So in no way am I ever trying to diminish what a person has been through, the trauma that they have suffered. And I want to acknowledge that it was horrific what happened. 
that day. And you could literally fill in the blank with whatever your personal loss tragedy is. And at the same time, can you find it within yourself to push through? And so to me, the resilience is the ability to bounce back from adversity. But optimism is about the ability to flourish in the face of it. And it says, I know that these things can happen. One of my favorite quotes in the book is that I share is that even if I knew the world would end tomorrow, I would still plant my apple tree. And there's some <laughs> controversy about who said it, Martin Luther King, Martin Luther. But I just loved it. And I said, you know, I, we don't know who, you know, who to, to attribute it to. But even still, these things will happen. So victimhood, yes, you can sit in it. But what happens is then it festers within you in the form of either shame or guilt. Mm. But what it does is diminish your personal agency. And that's what this book is all about, is acknowledgement, having compassion towards yourself, something that I struggled with, and I talk about that in one of the chapters. But then what is a way forward and out of it? Well, actually, just to pick up on that, on the compassion piece. So um, earlier this season, we had Dr. Tracy Baxley come on and talk with us about compassion. And one of the things that comes up in your book is struggling with personal compassion and using negative self-talk, running oneself down. So when it comes to negative self-talk, which you know, I think many of us can be prone to at times, like how do we flip the script on this? How do we move into a place of being gentler with ourselves and more accepting. Yes. You know, when we talk about self-compassion, I'm also very much an admirer of the work of Dr. Kristen Neff. And she talks about mm-hmm. the, the ideas of three common threads. Is One is a mindful observation of what you're experiencing. So I always say to my patients, notice these negative thoughts the way you would notice um, airport baggage carousel. You see it go by, you may have comments and judgment about it, but you don't go home with somebody else's baggage. Love that. Okay, I am stealing that. That is that is the best description ever I have heard of letting things go by. That is apt and funny at the same time. Okay, keep going, keep going. <laughs> Thank you. So, so don't invest in these negative thoughts. Be aware of them and let them go. The second part is the acceptance of it, of, okay, I have this, okay, this happened to me, or okay, I messed up, I did this, I screwed up, okay? And then the common humanity piece, which I love so much because it says, am I the only person who has ever screwed up in, in, in the mm. world? I am not alone in this. We all do this. This is, this is what bonds us. I'm not the first person. And I think for me, what's really helpful is hearing about other people's difficulties. And they're like, you know, Sue, I struggled with the same thing. Do you know I went through this? Why do you beat yourself up over this? And all of these three things then gives you a path forward after you accept, after you observe and mindfully notice, and after you recognize that you're not alone it then allows you to move forward. And what I love and I talk about in the book is the, the, the beauty and the science behind the self-compassion that when students take tests, they took a math test, they failed it. When they did self-compassion exercises and asked themselves these three questions, are you alone in this? Can you observe it? Can you accept it? They actually came back and beat the kids that didn't and scored higher than those who failed but then did not mm-hmm. do the self-compassion exercises. Mm-hmm. When parents who are struggling with children and are beating themselves up because they feel helpless and hopeless do self-compassion exercises, they are more effective with their children. So this is not just one of those woo-woo concepts. There is real science behind it. And everything in this book, whether it's optimism or self-compassion, I talk about the studies. And all of these benefits, you see them in, this, in the form of 
accelerated wound healing after surgeries, less mm -hmm. recurrence of cancer, um, less anxiety, less depression. So in the prevention, in the maintenance phase of recovery, and then also in just optimization of wellness. And I always say that, you know, while all of us, uh, you know, there, there might be one out of five people, that's a statistic, will experience mental illness in their life. But five out of five of us can experience mental wellness. So even if you're struggling with depression and anxiety, does not mean that you can't also engage in activities that bring you joy and that bring you happiness while you're also in treatment. So, you know, this book is never meant to replace the good work that you're doing individualized with a therapist, but it can certainly be a supplement and an adjunct and give you a way forward to give you hope. And that's what I want people to take away is like, there's hope. Like, it doesn't matter what you've been through. You're not alone. And, and you have uh, a tool kit mm -hmm. for life, a friend for life. Think of practical optimism as a friend. I, I also love it. In your book, you've got these exercises. So, you know, go get the book because they tell you, she walks us through exactly what to do. If you're wondering what that self-compassion exercise is, it's in the book. Um, Sue, I want to ask you on the topic of a woo-woo that I really believe in. You know, Lisa's always grounded in the science. That's what you're coming to this podcast. <laughs> we are grounded in science. So I am obsessed with visualization and manifestation. My husband makes fun of me all the time on this. But you talk a little bit about this from a medical and science perspective. I'm curious, does it really work? And am I crazy for feeling this way? What does the science say about visualization? Yes, Rena, you're not crazy at all. The science shows that when we envision the best possible outcome, we are more likely to achieve it. So manifest away, visualize away. And the only thing I would say is just back it up with, with action steps. That's all I would say is that when you are visualizing the best possible outcome, also take the time to plot out the steps to achieve it. And why do you think it works when, when I'm visualizing it? How do I get to that goal by visualizing it? Yes. When you visualize it, what, what, you, what you're doing is you're recognizing A, the steps that you need to take and B, the obstacles that are in your way that you need mm. to account for. And then C, it helps you realize like, oh, this is who I can ask. This who this is who I can help. So for example, let's say you want an exercise routine. You're going to need help from your husband to take care of kids you're able to visualize, all right, from point A to point B, this, these are the steps that I'm going to need to take. And I can see that these are where the obstacles might come in. And then this is who I'm going to ask to help to eliminate those obstacles. And it also puts you in a positive mood so that when you finish visualizing, you're like, I'm pumped, I'm ready, let's mm. go. And so you need that extra motivation. There's a little bit of a dopamine kick of like, let's go, let's do this. And we need the dopamine kick because then we're not going to, without it, we're not motivated. And I want people to do this. Take five minutes and sit. Envision a problem. Envision how your body feels. Allow your body to feel th the negativity. Is it clenched jaw? Is it tight fists? What is it that you're feeling? And then I also want you to imagine a path stretching out before you. You know, and you can do this sitting down with your shoulders, you know, relaxed, eyes closed. And then I want you to imagine a path forward. That path leads to the best possible outcome. Take your time going down that path. Ask yourself to visualize that path. What does it look like? Is it straight? Is it windy? And then imagine yourself arriving at that best possible outcome. And I want you to feel all the feelings that come with that, the joy, the relief. And hold on to that feeling and come back to it every day. The next thing is think about the steps that you're going to take to lead to it, right? So we never want someone to say, I'm manifesting this, but then not do the hard work that's behind it. Oh, man. So I just... you're. The people who work with you clinically are so lucky, and now everybody's so lucky. I mean, I, I think that that's what's so beautiful about books, right, is that you can just scale this kind of wisdom. 
Okay, let's take a minute on relationships here. We've been talking a lot about, you know, between ourselves and ourselves. Let's talk about ourselves and other people. You know, obviously, this has been an incredibly hard time. People have been isolated a tremendous amount. Relationships are tricky. You know, what I'm hearing in schools is that kids are having a much harder time with one another in terms of how they are treating each other at school. In your book, you talk about attachment and attachment style being so critical in terms of how people size up and are able to engage in relationships. Talk to us a little bit about, for our listeners from the parenting side of this, what do they want to be thinking about as they lay down these patterns at home with their own children? Yes, I love that. And Lisa, I would say you are the expert on that. <laughs> but um, if I were to give my two cents from a practical optimism point of view, I think one of the most interesting things that I learned is that how we come to a relationship, whether it be with our partner, whether it whether we are a student approaching a new classroom in the beginning of a school year or um, joining a new club or a new sport and we don't know anyone, when you approach any anybody with the idea that this person may have my best intentions at heart. When we give people the benefit of the doubt, when we seek the best, we are more likely to get the best. Now that doesn't always work. There's some people who are not gonna like us. And even in our relationships, somebody may be very fixed in the way that they behave towards us, but we see that partners and couples where the perception of support is there. You may or may not get support from your partner, but just the mere fact that you perceive them to be supportive is correlated with your own well-being and the relationship's well-being. So I really believe that when we're dealing with our children, I feel like, you know, I have two kids and I'm, you know, very much learning, you know, and what I have learned, you know, as a parent that seems to be effective, and I'll come back to you and tell you how it is in a few years, but (laughs) I think forgiveness, um, humility, and patience. And when I'm able to say, you know, if my kids call me out that like, you know, you said this or you said that and I didn't like how you made me feel, I want to be quick to say, you know what, you're right and I'm sorry, Mm. you know, and I'm sorry I hurt your feelings and what can I do and how can I be better? And that's not something I grew up with, you know, I don't remember growing up. You're right. Same, Sue, I agree with you. Like this was a game changer that Lisa taught me to do and I can literally see every time I do it, the look on my kids like, and I know that I'm building to them for them. Um. Like that they, they know that they need to do this too. If they screw up, yes. repair it quickly. Yes. And apologize. Yes. yes. And that like and then and, and like taking the power dynamic out of it. Like mm. I think of myself as a guide, you know, because like there, yeah, I, I wanna say if it was I'm trying to say if it was Cahil Gibran that said, like, your children don't come from you, they come through you, something mm. like that. It might be. And and looking at them and 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 saying, Okay, I'm a guide. And at some point when they're hitting their tween, you know, tween and teen years is to say, like, um, you know, these are my thoughts and to really respect their autonomy and their agency um, and giving them the benefit of the doubt and then saying that I don't always have all the answers and leveling the playing field by sharing your own vulnerability. And I'm always cautious because I was like, I know this is going to come back to haunt me because you're going to throw it in my face, (laughs) (laughs) but you failed, but you, (laughs) I know it's coming back and I know, but you know, but we were having Mm -hmm. the sex talk and uh, Mm. I don't know if I'm allowed to say this. Sure. Of course. It was really funny because, you know, my older son is at that age where now he's interested in girls and he, you know, he told me and, and we, then I was like, okay, that he was interested in somebody. I was like, okay, well, we need to have the talk. And then he asked me about my sex life. And I mm, was what? with me and my husband. And I was mm. not prepared. <laughs> I would not have been prepared. Yeah. But I answered it honestly. And he was mm-hmm. so happy. He's like, good for you, mom. And I was like, well, because I, I wanted to set an example of like what it is like to be in a yeah. committed, healthy, loving mm. relationship. And 
part of me was a little bit thrown off because I was like, wait, you know, is this one of those, like, are you trying to gain some power over me? Because this is a very uncomfortable question for like a young boy to ask his mom. But then it opened it up where he was like, and then he started sharing about himself, about Mm. what he was planning on doing. And I was like, oh my God, I never would have gotten this information out of him had I not been vulnerable and took a chance and shared about myself. And then he was like, mom, I'm good for you. I'm good. I'm, I'm good for you. I'm happy for you and dad that like you guys are so connected and spend time and feel this way about each other. And then like, that's what I want for myself when I grow up. Mm. And I was like, good. When, for when you grow up, <laughs> not right now. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Very far down the line. This yeah, will be yeah. wonderful. Yeah. But, oh, um, Sue, that's an incredible story. I was not, you know, so I just feel like I'm thrown things every day, but it's like, I, I just like respecting them. And, uh, yeah. and and recognize them and human being and then re- and feeling that like I don't have them forever you know and like we, I'm lucky and blessed to have this time with you but the best thing I can do is to equip you with skills so that when we're not together you're always going to make the right choice and maybe you're not going to but it's okay because we haven't you know we have other mm-hmm. chances yeah Sue before you go I want to ask you how do we create daily good habits who are the people who master well being well how are they able to make the pivot? And how do they stay there? Yes. So to make certain things in your life non-negotiable, and I talk about in the book the four M's of mental health, and you can really pick any habits that speak to you, but these are four that I pick that are science-backed, that when I had to give somebody advice, I was part of a pandemic program for Global Citizen, and it was, you know, with all, with all these fancy people, Oprah and, you know, J-Lo and the late night hosts, and they said, you know, we want you to give people hope and give them action steps, what they can do to take care of their mental health and inspiration. And I was like, great, I have like an hour. And they're like, no, 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 you have 59 seconds. <laughs> So I was like, all right, I'm going to pack it in. And the 50, in 59 seconds, I share four habits, mindfulness. So do whatever you can a couple of day, a couple of minutes a day to be in the moment. That could be just drinking a cup of coffee uninterrupted. Um, it could be enjoying a sunset, being here present in, in whatever way. It could be doing a meditation, totally up to you, but doing something single-mindedly. The other is mastery, doing something that you do just for the fun of it, for nobody else but you. And you don't even have to be a master to experience mastery. You just have to want to get better at something. Movement. I talk about in the book how my dad, non-negotiable, walks. He's 87, five Mm. miles a day. He picks up my kids from school. He walks. Um, He's on the bike or the treadmill and does weights. And he will not start his day without doing this, sometimes yoga, sometimes doing prayer, But this is a part of his habit. And I had a front row seat to the four M's and really practical optimism in many ways. So for him, it's non-negotiable. And I see that he has what we call exceptional longevity, which is not only living longer, but living longer in good health. Like this man, Nakanwood, has zero medical problems. So while you could say genetics, I mean, he looks easily 10, 15 years younger. We travel all over the world world together. He's the one initiating the travel, going- That's amazing. Hiking trips in Europe seeing his friends from all over the world and staying connected to people, so meaningful engagement in whatever form that means. And I think that it's- really- And is that the fourth M, the yeah. meaningful, meaningful engagement? Excellent. Yeah. yeah. So taking time for him, it's you know reconnecting with friends from medical school, from different parts of the world, taking the time to meet them. He went to Vancouver Island to see one friend, went to Heidelberg to see another friend. So really keeping in contact with people and going deep, because I think that's what we're missing right now, Lisa and Mina. Like I feel like a lot of people in relationships, friendships, young people especially, there's something called the shallowing hypothesis that they're not going very deep in their friendships. Mm -hmm. We're not going very deep when we read. So when you do connect with someone, 
share a little bit something vulnerable. You know, I feel like I got a little mm. vulnerable with you telling you about my son and I'm so embarrassed yeah. about that story. I was no, like, I can't it's great. But, but that's how we get close to one another, right? Yeah. Like sharing our challenges and asking for help, asking for advice. And you don't realize it that like when you put yourself out there, it's natural that other people are going to want to take care of you just a little bit. And that's yeah. how you form a bond. So don't be afraid to get close to people. And then, I, and then in, in the book, I talk about all about habits, you know, about automating habits and how, how to eliminate choice and the steps in which you can take so that anything that you want to do should become automated because you don't want to leave it to the mercy yeah. of being tired or whatever it might be. Yeah. Yeah. I think about it in terms of, we've talked about it here, recovery routines, right? Mm. That they just have to be built in. Oh, so thrilled for you that this book is out today. Thrilled for the world that this book is out today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. So great to be here. And I learned so much from both of you. So thank you. This was an honor. Real pleasure. The book is called Practical Optimism, The Art, Science, and Practice of Exceptional Well-Being with Dr. Sue Varma. So Lisa, what do you have for us for Parenting to Go? So there's so much one could say that it was an incredible conversation. I just want to bold and underline one thing that Sue said about how we enter relationships, shaping what comes back to us. And when I've cared for young people who find themselves in sort of awkward social situations, which is pretty common, mm -hmm. and who will start to ruminate about it and, and feel really nervous about seeing that person in class or seeing that person at sports, my guidance, and this is really how I say it, and it sounds really unsophisticated, but it really works as guidance. I'm like, here's what you want to do. Don't be weird. Just mm -hmm. be totally normal, be mm -hmm. friendly, be mm -hmm. easygoing, assume they like you. You can drive the interaction into a more comfortable place by how you approach it. So um, I would say the takeaway today is that sometimes it is okay to say to kids, you're nervous about this interaction. My guidance, don't be weird. That's great advice, Lisa, and a great finish of what was just an incredible podcast episode. I learned so much from both of you. Yeah, she is really something special. And next week, we're going to talk about what parents should do when their kids are introverts, and it can also make for very awkward feelings. I'll see you next week. I'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to subscribe to the Ask Lisa podcast so you get the episodes just as soon as they drop. And send us your questions to asklisa at drlisademore.com. And now a word from our lawyers. The advice provided on this podcast does not constitute or serve as a substitute for professional psychological treatment, therapy, or other types of professional advice or intervention. If you have concerns about your child's well-being, consult a physician or mental health professional. If you're looking for additional resources, check out Lisa's website at drlisademore.com. We'll see you next week.